0: In our lives, that are completely unexpected. And, and some of those things that are unexpected are absolutely delightful. Uh, for instance, you get an unexpected raise or an unexpected promotion or perhaps a, an unexpected job offer. That's a, a great thing. Uh, maybe you get an unexpected visit or unexpected telephone call from an estranged family member or friend. You never expected this was possibly going to be happening. And then boom, out of the blue, somebody, they call you and you begin to rebuild this relationship that you so longed that would be able to be rebuilt. Uh, Maybe there was an unexpected apology that that comes from uh, a hurt that you had at some point in time. Uh, Maybe there's that wonderful unexpected friendship uh, that turns into uh, an unexpected romance, that turns into an unexpected proposal that hopefully turns into an expected marriage. Uh, There's the unexpected pregnancy that comes in the midst of perhaps a lot of unexpected infertility, and that's just a blessing. And uh, there's a lot of times that there are unexpected healings that that come from diseases that were unexpected. And and those and, and so many other countless unexpected blessings. They're they're just wonderful, and they buoy our spirits, and they make us feel really good about life. But you know, there's a lot of things in this world that are unexpected that are not so uh, pleasant. Uh, There's unexpected infertility. You so much want to have a baby, and uh, you just can't figure out how to have one. Uh, There's the unexpected pregnancy that you didn't want to get pregnant, and you didn't expect to get pregnant. And uh, but it happened. And, and then there are unexpected miscarriages and all the pain that comes along with them. Uh, sometimes there's unexpected arrivals of special needs kids that, that you never thought that that would, would possibly happen. And, and you, you've been thrust into a situation that you just simply weren't prepared for and have to rely on God's unexpected goodness. Uh, there are unexpected accidents, you're getting a car and driving every single day like you do, and uh, somebody decides they're not going to stop for a stop sign. And, and maybe that unexpected accident uh, creates an unexpected injury. and That unexpected injury creates uh, unexpected expenses. Are there unexpected job losses and unexpected pay cuts, unexpected viruses that make you work at home unexpectedly? Uh, There are unexpected betrayals that happen in this world that uh, lead to unexpected broken relationships and sometimes unexpected divorces. And there are unexpected disappointments that come from grown children who make unexpected really, really bad decisions. And perhaps the most difficult one of all are unexpected deaths of people who you love so very much. You get that phone call in the middle of the night, and you never, ever expected it was going to happen, but it did. And uh, there are many things in life that are unexpected, but if there is one thing that is more unexpected than anything else, it's the grace of God. You see, God's grace, God's unmerited favor, uh, The God who forgives the unforgivable, restores the unrestorable, who saves the unsavable, always seems to show up at the most unexpected of times and the most unexpected of ways to the most unexpected of people. And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning. I want to talk about... uh, the unexpected grace that God shows. So we're we're on this, uh, we're in this uh, series, it's called Following the Faithful. Uh, Pastor Ben and I and Mike Bongo, uh, we decided we needed to take a, a little break from, well, we've taken a long break from this Genesis study. We've been dropping different things in because life at church has been so fluid, but because we we're going to have uh, open the services back up and Our kids programs are not all opening at the same time. We're going to have kids here in the service. We decided we probably need to do something that the the kids could kind of resonate with too. And so we decided we'd do this thing called following the faithful, basically looking at accounts in the Bible that that kids would readily recognize and that adults would be able uh, to do. And so tonight we're going to examine, or today I should say, we're going to examine the extraordinary uh, life of a woman who is named Rahab. Uh, she's an extraordinary woman. She's all ultimately a, a heroine of the, or heroine of, heroine, how do you say that word? I'm, I'm pronouncing the drug here, right? I'm sure, help me. Heroin. all right, okay. I guess I was close there, all right. See this is, see how messed up I am right now? So, uh, but this is a lady, she, she had a pretty difficult life. Uh, She is a Canaanite, and the Canaanites were an ancient tribe of people who uh, occupied the the promised land of the Israelites prior to the Israelites coming onto the scene and who were ultimately displaced by the nation of Israel. Uh, They were polytheists who worshipped multiple gods, gods who were nothing more than carved images or cast statues. Uh, Their worship practices were extremely sensual, they were very immoral, Uh, they featured behaviors that would uh, have the Motion Picture Association of America give them an NC-17 rating, that's the kind of stuff that was going on in the midst of their worship services. Uh, They were the enemies of God, and they were ultimately the enemies of the Israelites. And you have Rahab, but she's not just a, a Canaanite. Rahab is also a woman of ill repute, and I, I use that term uh, most probably in a futile attempt to protect our parents from having their elementary school students ask them uh, stu- to answer questions that they don't really want to answer, but I'm probably not being helpful to parents at all. But. And uh, more than that, it appears from the text as I was working through the commentaries that uh, not only was she a woman of ill repute, but she actually ran a, a business that employed other women of ill repute. And whether she, she chose that lifestyle or whether she was forced into that lifestyle, we, we really can't know that particular answer. Uh, but what we, we do know is this, that she is someone who you certainly would think would be the recipient of God's wrath rather than God's grace. But, you know, we couldn't be any more wrong. So let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to open it up to uh, Joshua chapter 2. We're going to start off by reading the first seven verses. We're all only going to make our way through the entirety of the chapter this morning. If you don't have a, a, a Bible at the end of the service, if you let us know that, I normally have Bibles out on the tables and stuff, but we've kind of removed those for the time being. But if you let us know that, if you don't have a Bible, Uh, We'll make sure that we get you one because we want you to have one, and uh, we want you to read it, not to make us feel good, but because uh, it'll change your life. So Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and uh, if you're able to stand uh, here in the room, and if you're able to stand at home, if you would do that in honor of God's word, Uh, and it says this, and Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I do not know where they're from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for, they will, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, at this point in God's word, the ancient Israelites have spent the last 40 years wandering in the desert. Uh, Four decades earlier, God had used Moses to to rescue the Israelite people out of slavery in Israel. Egypt, and uh, told them that he would provide them a a land where they could ultimately dwell in and call their own. However, because of the Israelites' almost immediate failure, their almost immediate disobedience after being released from the, the promised land, God made them wander in the desert until the entire generation of those who had been disobedient died off, including their leader, Moses. And now we're some 40 years from that point. The descendants of the unfaithful are now, you know, all of the unfaithful have died off. The descendants of the unfaithful are ready to take the promised land. They've got a new leader. His name is Joshua. They're standing on the western shore of the Jordan River, and it is is flood swollen. And if you've lived in Harrisburg any period of time, you know what a, a river looks like when it's flood swollen. It's, it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, the water is just cruising by. And you know that if you just go into that water, you are going to ultimately get destroyed. But they're standing on the shores. They're looking at this swollen river. They look across there. They see the promised land. And out in the distance, they see this, this fortress city of Jericho. And this land is filled with people. It's not like it's an empty piece of land. The the Israelites are going to have to take this land by force. And one of the first things that they're going to have to do is they're going to have to penetrate this fortress city called Jericho. Now, in preparation for the battle, as you saw in the the video, Joshua, he sends two spies uh, across the river, and, and they make their way through the promised land. And they ultimately Uh, come into the city of Jericho because they're they're looking for intel on the land, they're looking for intel on on the city itself. And when the spies arrive, uh, they make their way to Rahab's brothel, which is built in the wall of the city. Now, this is a brilliant strategy on the part of the spies, And and what makes it so brilliant is a a brothel is a great place to gather intelligence. I mean, there are people from all walks of life that are hanging out in this brothel. Uh, Pretty much their inhibitions are down because they wouldn't be in a brothel if their inhibitions were up. Uh, Undoubtedly, alcohol is flowing, and when alcohol is flowing... Uh, People tend to have loose lips, and loose lips do sink ships, but loose lips also uh, destroy cities. So it's a perfect plan, except there is a problem. It appears that these two spies are, are less like Jason Bourne and James Bond, and they're more like Austin Powers or Maxwell Smart, or somebody like that. You know, they're just kind of bumbling kind of fools because somehow they managed to get themselves discovered. And so the the king of Jericho finds out about this and he sends a contingent into uh, Rahab's brothel to have her turn the spies over to him. And uh, it's at this point where we discover Uh, the first lesson that we learn from this account, and it's this, that God's grace uses the unexpected. God's grace uses the unexpected. Now, amazingly, rather than handing over the spies to the king, Rahab has hidden the spies, and she lies to the authorities who are coming to look for her for them. And this is what it says. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they're from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for they will overtake, you will overtake them. Now this isn't just kind of a tiny little lie. She, she's got a big lie going on here, a very kind of elaborate lie. Uh, first thing she says is, You know, yeah, these guys showed up, but I have no idea where they're from. And she says these guys, they they left, you know, as it was just getting dark, as the gate was getting ready to be closed, they they snuck out through the gate. And I got to tell you, I have no idea where they went. But what I do know is if you leave here right now and you go after those guys, you're probably going to catch up with them. Now, this is the kind of lie that's going to get you thrown in jail. It's the kind of lie that that might ultimately result in having your head very quickly removed from your body with some sharp piece of steel back in the day. But that's what she does. And amazingly, the king's men, they actually buy the lie. And, and, and they, they 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 leave her and they head off on this wild goose chase looking for these spies who just happen to be on the roof above where they were at. And what has occurred here is that God, in His grace, is using the lies of Rahab to protect these spies. And can you imagine what the spies are probably thinking? The spies are probably like, why in the world is this Canaanite woman risking her life for us? We, we just met her. We, we don't owe her anything at all. And, and they're probably thinking, you know, she has got absolutely everything to lose. And she has nothing at all to gain. And they're probably thinking, you know, we're spies. You know, we, we deserve to die. We, we, we knew this when we signed up for the gig, you know. We, we knew there was going to be plausible deniability. You know, we're, you know, if you go out there and you don't come back, what happens to you? It's all about you. I mean, they know that the risks that were involved. And they're probably more than anything thinking, you know what, only God, our God, could possibly pull this thing off. And that's what happens is many times God uses unexpected people to show us grace. People who are different than us, people who don't necessarily look like us, uh, people who our culture said aren't supposed to be kind to us. And that's what happened in Jesus' parable of, of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells this a, a story that there's this Jewish man and he's uh, you know, traveling from one city to another. He's in this very remote place and, and some robbers come upon him and beat him basically to the point where he's almost dead. And, and he's laying there and he's dying. He's bleeding out. And, and uh, a, a Jewish uh, priest comes by and looks at this Jewish man lying on the side of the road and rather than help him, he passes by. And then a, a Levite, the helper of a priest, comes by and, and looks at the guy lying on the road, and, and, and he passes by. And then ultimately, a, a Samaritan comes along, a guy who is an enemy of the Jews, and, and he sees this, this wounded Jewish man, and, and he has pity upon him and mercy upon him, and he, he gathers him together, and he puts him on his his, his, his horse or his donkey or whatever he's got, his Yugo, whatever it is, Yugo, that's a bad illustration because many people don't even remember what a Yugo was. It was a really bad Russian built car from a long time ago, or Yugoslavian built car, if I'm not mistaken. But anyhow, uh, you know, takes him into the city, gets him bandaged up, pays for all his care and stuff like that. And that's the picture that, that Jesus paints us. And it would be the equivalent of our day of, of some white police officer becoming severely injured in an Antifa riot. And uh, he's laying on the ground, and he's bleeding and stuff like that, and, and barely clinging to life, and an FBI agent sees the police officer laying on the ground, and instead of rendering assistance, he goes by the other way, or, or a member of the ATF uh, comes by and looks at the, this police officer lying on the ground, and, and he decides that he's going to go by. And then a, a young 20-something uh, black woman wearing a BLM shirt carrying a rainbow flag comes along, and, and she picks up the police officer, and she puts him in, in, in her Prius that's got a, you know, a bumper sticker that says, you know, everything goes better with kale or whatever, and, and drives him to the hospital. You know, that's what's going on here. And brothers and sisters, that's many times how God actually works He uses unexpected people to show us his unexpected grace. And what's really wonderful is when you and I get to be the unexpected person who gets to show people God's unexpected grace. It's those times when we get to show God's grace to someone who's so totally different than us someone who doesn't like us, someone who doesn't respect us, someone who doesn't believe like us, or look like us, or dress like us, or smell like us, or vote like us. You see, when we step past our differences and we show people the love of Christ, we're fulfilling Jesus' command in Luke chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus says. He says this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer to them the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus could have said, you know, if you love those who look like you, what benefit is that to you? Because even sinners do that. And if you do good to those who do good for you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. be merciful even as your father is merciful and that brothers and sisters is the message that is sadly lacking in our hyperpolarized culture right now and those whose lives have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ we are called to that higher standard that's what we're called to we are called to show love In the midst of hatred, we we are called to, to, to show forgiveness in the midst of condemnation. We are called to show grace in the midst of revenge, humility in the midst of pride, sacrifice in the midst of entitlement, and repentance in the midst of self righteousness. That's what we're called to do. God is calling you and me to actively demonstrate His grace, and if we don't do it, there is nobody else who will. There is nothing, no other faith system in all of the world that has grace. None. Christianity alone is the one that offers grace. Christianity alone is the one who gives people unmerited favor. And Christianity alone has a savior who dies on a cross for a sinful people. The rest of the religions out there are doing their best to work their way to some God who is false, where the God of the universe and Christianity came down to pathetic, wounded, sinful people like you and me. And we are called to emulate our Savior. Now, the second thing that we learn from this passage is this, that God's grace it actually saves the unexpected. Let's look at verses eighteen or 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt with Let kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. And if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, the statements... That Rahab make regarding God here are nothing short of miraculous. You got to remember that th- this woman is a Canaanite. She's a, a a polytheist. She she worships multiple gods. All of these gods are. Are idols and statues, Asheropols, Baal. I mean, it's just this crazy. It's all fertility cults. It's just it's just this mess of a belief system. And in verse eight, listen to what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land. The word "Lord" that she uses there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the sacred name of God for the Israelites. It's the name that that God used to identify himself to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. It means, I am who I am. That's what it means. And it's a term that that demonstrates that, that the God of the Israelites is the infinite and original personal God who is behind everything and through whom everything finds its source. But Rahab, she doesn't stop there. That's not the only declaration that she makes. Look again at verse 11. It says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. This is Rahab talking. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then she says this, for the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. With with this statement, Rahab is, is, she's rejecting everything that she used to believe. And she is declaring her faith and allegiance to the one and true God of the universe. These spies got to be thinking like, how in the world did this possibly happen? How does she know about Yahweh? How does she have faith in Yahweh? And the obvious question is, how did that happen? How did this woman who is in this polytheistic fertility cult come to have faith in the God of the universe? Well, the only answer is that somehow, way, God revealed himself to her. God moved aside heaven and earth and somehow shows her who he is. Somehow, he allows her to to know about the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the two kings of the Amorites. But here's the the, the situation, though. This is what we know. Mere knowledge of what God has done doesn't save. It didn't back then. It doesn't now. Now. Somehow, some way, God not only had to place knowledge in her heart, but somehow, some way, God had to place faith in Rahab's heart that allows her to act upon that knowledge, reject the false gods that she's worshiped, repent of her sin, and receive the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph as her Savior and Lord. And as much as He did it for her, He possesses the power to do it for any of us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter two. This is a passage, I know I use it all the time, but this this passage, it speaks to the depths of our sin and our need for a savior. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This describes me prior to conversion. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by nature, by our very nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When Rahab was dead in her sins and trespasses, when she passionately yet futilely worshipped all of these false idols when she's living this immoral lifestyle and she's encouraging other people to live the same immoral lifestyle, in the midst of that spiritual mess, God extends his mercy and grace to her completely unexpectedly, not because of how good she was, but in spite of how bad she actually was. And it was because of God's love for her, because of his beautiful and unexpected saving grace, that he reveals himself to her, that he opens her eyes to who he is, and that he enables her to place her trust in him. And if God can save someone like Rahab, is there anyone beyond his mighty arm to save? There is none. God has the ability to save anyone he desires. We look at people and we write them off so quickly. They do things that we think they shouldn't do. They believe believe things we think they shouldn't believe. We think they are so far gone. There is no way that they are worthy of God's love or worthy of my love, let alone God's love. That's how quickly we write people off. But God says, no, 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 no. I can save a Canaanite prostitute who's worshiping all kinds of false gods. I can save her. If I want to do that, that's what I'm going to do. And so, brothers and sisters, that should radically change the way that we look at people. From our president other world leaders, the politicians, the movie stars, the football players, the next-door neighbors. If God has saved us in our mess, how in the world can he not possibly save somebody else in their mess? And there are times I'm very ashamed of myself of how incredibly self-righteous I am. And how incredibly judgmental I am when God has been so incredibly kind to me. This brings us to uh, our last point. God's grace does the unexpected. Rahab and the the spies, they they make a a deal. Let me show you how that deal works. Look at verses 15 to uh, 24. Then she let them down by a rope through the window of her house For her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear." And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, and they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all of the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So Rahab and the spies, they they make this deal. Uh, When they return to the city, they will spare her life and the life of her family members if and only if she places this scarlet cord out of the window of her home, her business that's built into the city wall. And this is, this is reminiscent of uh, the blood, the scarlet blood that the, the Israelites had placed on the thresholds of their home some 40 years earlier in Egypt when the last plague was coming, the plague that was going to kill all the firstborn. If they, they put the, the blood of, of, of the sacrifice on their threshold, the, God would pass over their home and allow their firstborn children to live but he would kill the firstborn children of anybody who didn't have that scarlet blood there. So it's reminiscent of that. So Rahab, she does just as she has been instructed. She places the the scarlet cord out of the window of her home and then she waits for the Israelites to attack the city. Now, Now days go by and then something amazing happens. As you saw in the video, just as God parted the Red Sea for Moses, God parts the swollen Jordan River for Joshua. Now, you've got to imagine the Canaanites, they're watching this. I mean, they've heard the story of the Red Sea being parted, but, you know, to most of them, it was just a story. Now, in reality, it's actually happening. And they've got to be abjectly terrified. It's got to be absolutely terrifying because the, the, the river, it stops flowing. The people begin to march on, on the other side. We were safe when the river was there. We're no longer safe. Now our enemies are on our side. But there's one Canaanite who has traded her, her fear for faith. And she's the one who's got the red cord hanging out of her window. Now, more days pass, and eventually the the Israelites begin to to march around the city. And we're told uh, from the text that that each day they march around the city one time. And then, again, the Canaanites, they're watching in horror as this army marches around their city once, led by the priests, basically the worship leaders of Israel. The, the, the town. It'd be like Pastor Paul and, and Fu and the folks up front leading the, the army, all right? And so they're, they march around once, and then they stop for the day. The next day, they march around. They do this for six days. And then on the seventh day, the Israelite army marches around not once, not twice, but ultimately marches around seven times. As they finish the seventh circuit, uh, the worship team, you know, they totally go crazy, they play, you know, they got the bass guitar going, the drums are beating, you know, and all this. Ultimately, the horns are just blowing is what's happening in this case. But the walls of Jericho, they collapse, all except for the portion of the wall that has the scarlet cord. And Joshua 6 details what happens. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there a woman, the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasuries of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab does what she is told, and she is spared. But she wasn't just spared. She becomes a member of the Israelite community. And if we ended there, this would be a remarkable story about how God's grace not only used an immoral woman, but how from an immoral community and how she played this vital role in securing the promised land for the Israelites, but it also would be how God called that immoral woman from a immoral community to himself and how she responded in faith. That That would be beautiful. How God used the woman and how God saved the woman. But God does something entirely over the top. You see, the story doesn't end there. Because what happens here. Not only does God's grace use the unexpected and save the unexpected, God's grace ultimately does the unexpected. And Rahab would eventually marry an Israelite man by the name of Salmon. And the two of them would give birth to a baby boy by the name of Boaz, who would marry a young woman by the name of Ruth, who would give birth to a baby boy named Obed, who would be the grandfather of Jesse and the great-grandfather of a king by the name of David. And from the lineage of David, some two thousand or 1,000 years later, a baby boy would be born to a virgin named Mary, and his name would be Jesus, who was and is and forever will be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Who possibly... Would have expected that a Canaanite woman of the night would be in the lineage of the Savior of the world. So, what does that mean for you and me? It means that God's grace is not only able to save the vilest of sinners, but God wants the vilest of sinners to be part of his lineage. That is remarkable. That is incredible. What that tells me is that that, that God is actively looking for people to to draw into his family, people who are completely unexpected, people who appear to be unsavable, people who seem to be so incredibly far away. But he draws them to himself. Jesus said what? I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there is, brothers and sisters, no sin too great that cannot be covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. Let me pray. Lord God, you are good. And you are gracious. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, using A Canaanite prostitute, Heavenly Father, to show us what grace is. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you placed her in the lineage of your son. Lord, it is a reminder for us that how if you were willing to align yourself with Rahab, that you would be willing to align yourself with us. May we be a people who, Heavenly Father, lives out that grace in our lives offers that grace to others. Would you bring healing to our community, to our state, to our nation, to our world? And may you use us, Heavenly Father, to be that vehicle. It's through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we prepare to close?